The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Got food addiction? It almost feels like we all do these days. We're being, you can't sit down and watch television without being barraged by commercials that make their food look incredibly scrumptious and make you feel hungry all of a sudden. Um, there are, of course, real uh, diagnosable food uh, issues, eating disorders like bulimia and anorexia and so on. Um, in addition to, you know, the general feeling that we have of just, just, uh, <laughs> Being addicted, like especially to, to fast foods, we're both repulsed and addicted to it. Um, and other kinds of, you know, eating when we're not hungry, eating when we're emotional. One of the things that I talk about is how um, people want to deny that we're being impacted by the threat of terror, terrorism and the memory of 9-11. But since 9-11, we have been um, become... Um, prey to an obesity epidemic, and we're trying to comfort ourselves with comfort food. Well, my guest today, um, well, the show title today is Breaking Free from, from Food Addiction and a Cult-Like Therapist. So whereas many of us can relate to the food addiction, <laughs> you may not have had, it is unlikely that you have had, um, been a captive of a cult-like therapist. However, my guest, Candace Heather, um, has had both. And she's going to take us on a journey of her personal story. And um, I'm sure there are things that we will be able to relate to. Um, and, you know, in sort of warning, warning signs um, of things perhaps in our own life, not necessarily a cult-like therapist, but um, certain feelings and certain um, coping mechanisms that aren't particularly healthy. So um, without further ado, uh, let me welcome to the show Candace Heather. Candace? Hello. Um, it's nice to be on today. Would you, would you like me to just go straight ahead? Well, uh, let me just say, yes, but let me just say, mm-hmm. Candace, we're talking to Candace in London, and, um, you know, Candace, you had, I was mentioning 9-11, and you um, had your own in England, uh, 9-11, which was 7-7-2005, and um, I actually wrote a book that was uh, released on the end, one-year anniversary of 7-7 in London, uh, Coping with Terrorism, Dreams Interrupted. So um, do you think um, in, in London, in England, do you, has there been an increase, do you think, of people eating comfort food like I was talking about after 9-11? Yes, I mean, I, I think definitely there's um, there's so much, it's so prevalent these days. I think if we compare sort of going back to post-Second World War, 
um, you know, the rationing and everything else and it meant that um, there was less around and certainly less of the, of the refined foods. But these days, there's so much um, refining going on that I think that it's, it's very easy to turn to food, um, you know, as well as other refined things such as alcohol. So, um, yes, I would, I would agree with that. Okay, well, let's now go to your story. Um, why don't you just take us from, from your childhood, which you, uh, which, <laughs> which you describe as, as loving and happy, um, which I find very interesting because typically people don't develop food addictions or um, what you've called mental illness. I'm not sure what you mean by that uh, in your teens. So, so take us, start from the beginning. Sure. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so going back, um, I I remember um, uh, my my mum, especially my dad. There were lots of cuddles um, and um, very loving. My my father was actually quite strict, but he believed in you know making sure that we were polite. And um, I think we certainly all knew where we stood. That's for sure. Um, but um, just to sort of give you. A Bit of background when I um, when I speak to other people who have uh, eating disorders and particularly bulimia and binge eating disorder, uh, their backgrounds seem to range from um, very abusive, uh, having sort of alcoholic parents, to right through um, through to you know having a very stable and loving home. So um, I had I wanted for nothing. Um, we had, you know, our parents, I had my other three siblings, um, but I was a very anxious and um, frightened child and and a very sort of self-conscious child as well. Now, my sister was the exact opposite. Um, she seemed to be very confident and... Um, uh, and my middle brother, so two of us in the middle, we both seemed to be the ones who had a lot of anxiety, whereas my younger brother, when he came along, he was um, confident, happy, and we absolutely adored him as well. Um, so I, I grew up in a very... Was, mm. Your sister was how many years younger or older? She is um, three and a half years older than me. Okay. Um, and then uh, and my brother came along a couple of years after that, then me, and then there was a big gap. Um, and um, my brother came along after that uh, six years later. Uh-huh. Um, so he was he was the, the the baby and the darling of the family always, and still is to some extent. Um, and so um, I I grew up. I was um, we were my mum was at home most of the time when we were go- when we were growing up in the in a, I was born in 1965, and um, so I was at school from about the 70s onwards. And um, my mum would pick us up, pick me up from school. We had a stable background. we were doing our homework and everything. But um, I had a, I had a, a struggle at school, and um, I felt that teachers didn't like me. And it, it was almost as if I had this um, feeling of a, being a victim about me, if you like. And um, and I remember seeing to I, I felt whether it was true or not. I felt that the, that the teachers didn't like me, and I felt that they. Um, and I was often told actually that I wandered around with a face, a mis- you know, a miserable face, and um, feeling sorry for myself a lot. Um, so um, at school, my uh, the teachers, I, I seemed to get into trouble an awful lot, and I had particular trouble with my with um, eating my lunch. For me, it was it was love or hate with food. I absolutely detested the school dinners that they had um, in um, English schools at the time. I think they're a bit better these days. Um, and um, 
but I also I absolutely adored some of the um, the desserts um, and you know some of the pies that they had. So there were certain certain foods I loved and certain foods I hated. But you had to eat everything on your plate in those days, and if you yeah. didn't. And this is what happened to me. I would be force-fed, um, and I would be the last one usually in there being force-fed. And um, Force-fed? Who, yes. who would force-feed you? Well, the, the woman who was in charge of dinners was called Matron, and um, she, she was incredibly strict, and so she would um, physically restrain me, hold my nose, and, wow. and force the food into my into my mouth and hold her hand over my mouth to make me swallow. Huh. Um and so on one one particular occasion, um, I actually projectile vomited, and um, in hindsight, it was um, you know she got her comeuppance because she got covered in um, cheese, <laughs> lamb, and tomatoes. <laughs> so, um, but also, you see, we hated the food so much that my friends and I would um, we would try and conceal the food in our in our pockets. And if you ever got caught, uh, your, your your pockets would be turned out, and you'd be forced to eat the food in there. Mm. Um, my sister, um, she remembers having to eat moldy peas, and today she still can't can't stomach them as well. So it was it was a very unhealthy approach to children uh, children's eating, and there was, there was a lot of guilt about um, you know people who didn't have enough to eat in other countries, and that that was used to, to hmm. try and encourage us. Um, but um, yes, yeah, so, but was this in a, terms of the, was this a private school? Meaning, I mean, in England, I know it's the opposite. The public schools are the ones that people families pay for privately but was this sort of a state school or was it, it private was fee, it was a fee paying school yes at uh-huh. the time mm. um, yes that's right so um, but then so, so there was so there was this combination of absolutely hating some foods and loving the others mm-hmm. and because I because I struggled at school, I thought the teachers didn't like me and I wasn't doing very well with some of my subjects. I really struggled. Um, I, um, I you know wasn't very happy there, but I soon found that food uh, became my comfort, if you like. And um, on the way home, I would you know persuade my mum you know to have, if I could buy some some chips and things like that. And then when I would get in, pretty much for the rest of the evening, I would be up and down the stairs raiding the cupboards. Um, obviously, I don't think my my parents were aware of it. Um, they um, they often had people around to dinner, and I would make um, make use of, of the time that they were away to sort of load up and go up and down the stairs, um, loading up. And I soon and so I suppose it, it very very early on that food became my drug. Um, initially, it didn't have a huge impact on my weight, um, but when I got to about eleven, twelve, thirteen, it started to have a, an impact and I really, really hated my body. Um, I wasn't actually huge when I look back at photos of myself, but um, certainly, you know, I think plump would be the right um, right way to describe myself then. Um, and I started to feel that um, people were being unkind to me at school. I didn't like what I saw in the mirror and I thought, you know, this is it's time to take action. And that's really when I went on my first diet. And... Um, I, I suppose I was, it was a calorie-controlled diet at the time, uh, um, if I remember rightly. But um, and I very soon did lose weight, um, and so for I suppose about half a year, I, I lost a lot of weight, and I was um, I wouldn't say I was emaciated, although I did lose a significant amount. Um, but there, there came a time when um, my food 
uh, I started to sort of like then increase what I was eating. Um, and then the weight very soon started to climb up again. And then at the point where and that was a f- that carried on for a few years. And then by the time I was about 17, um, my weight uh, got to the point where again, I thought, no, something drastic has to be done. Um, and this time I took it to quite extreme measures and um, to the point where my parents were very worried and took me to the doctor. Um, and um, But I, I remember going to a wedding with a boyfriend at the time and um, suddenly it was as if something snapped in my mind and I lost control. And I, and I just kept going up for more and more food. Um, hmm. I seem to remember it was bread. And, um, and then at some, uh, at, at some stage I just thought, I've crossed the line, that's it. And really from that point onwards, um, the binging and the um, subsequent purging became um, very, very extreme. And it was, you know, in, in, in those times I thought it was bad then, but over the, over the next few years, the amount of um, binging and the, and the quantities consumed on each occasion became absolutely staggering. Hmm. And initially, I was able to use the food that, um, you know, well, I was obviously taking food from my parents, um, and initially that was enough. But at the point where um, that no longer satisfied the craving, because with with all addictions, um, it's a progressive disease and gets worse. Um, I reached the point where, no, it wasn't enough, so I had to start going out to buy more food, and I didn't have much money myself because I was at school at the time. So um, that's when it became, you know, very serious. And I was, I would actually start taking money from my mother's purse, using her credit cards, stealing from my brother's um, pocket money, and um, and using that to go out. And I would drive, and so that nobody, would, you know, all of this was was completely behind um, closed doors. Nobody knew I was doing this, hmm. apart from my sister, which I can explain later. Um, but my mum had no idea that I was going off driving and really using my car to to indulge in these binges. And um, and obviously, I didn't want anyone to know because it's so shameful. It's only now that I've had um, 29 years abstinence from binge eating that, um, you know, I... I feel comfortable talking about it or, you know, ha- having had that distance from it. But when you're actively engaged in, in, in the disease, um, it is uh, so shaming, so humiliating, and you just don't know what's going on. Um, every day I swore to myself I wouldn't do it again, just like an alcoholic or mm-hmm. uh, you know, an addict would say. And I would say, and I would pick up a um, a crisp bread. Guy Rita was the name of the brand at the time. Mm-hmm. And I would pick it up, and I would think to myself, well, I would just have one of these. And you know, it's a diet crisp bread that'll mm-hmm. be. But I didn't know what was going on in my brain um, at the time. Only only now realizing it, had the one, and then took another, and then another, and then another, and then very soon I would be on to. Um, all sorts of other foods, you know, from, so from this diet crisp bread, it would be on to anything I could lay my hands on. Um, mm-hmm. All the puddings, all the desserts, out to the shops, donuts, fries, anything I could get my hands on. And 
and it was it, it was it was almost as if you're driven to the point, you know, as if someone's holding a gun at your head and saying, mm-hmm. eat, 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 mm-hmm. and you're completely out of control, and um, going from one shop to the next with this, you know, ridiculous thing in your mind. Oh, mustn't buy too much from one shop because they'll know they'll uh-huh. think I'm a greedy pig if I buy it from there. So I then move on to the next. So I think um, the difference between somebody who I believe and, and many others do believe um, is a food addict compared to somebody who is uh, perhaps abuses their food um, is that we can't stop. Whereas somebody who eats way too much and just says, oh, well, I'll have a bit more and, um, you know, and probably does eat quite a lot is that they're not compelled, if you like. And then if, if health if health does become an issue for them, they can then actually stop. If you know somebody says, actually, no, you're in danger, or, or somebody might even be pushed to the point of having a heart attack, but they can still actually change. Whereas somebody who is, a, is an actual addict mm-hmm. um, is unable to control it um, without the right information. And the right information being you have to abstain from the foods which trigger you and you know, it so happens that the foods that trigger people are those refined and processed foods that mm-hmm, um, our mm-hmm. bodies can't tolerate. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, yeah, so um, back to the, the, the story. So I was at well, the Well, wait, point let me there. just ask you. Mm-hmm. So yes. you, you, because I know you write that during your teenage years you had mental illness. Are you calling this food addiction a mental illness or was there something else? Yeah, I would say so. Yes, I would. I would class um, it, it's uh, all eating disorders are seen as mental illness, um, are classified as such. Right. And, um, it, it, so it's a biogenetic, if you like, mental illness. Yes. Um, I mean, uh, the symptoms such as um, low self-esteem, uh, I mean, or rather, low self-esteem is seen as a symptom as opposed to a cause. Um, but. Um, I, I mean, if you, I, I can go into the the genetics of it, it's 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 well, no, let's let's, let's say really that. I mean, I know <laughs> actually, and actually, um, yes, I do want to mention this. <laughs> I forgot to mention your book, your your newly mm. released book, and we're we're going to be taking a break, so this is a good time. Uh, my, the the newly released book of my guest, Candace Heather, is the Suicide Gene: One Slave, Two Masters. A Memoir of Survival and Hope. And we will get back to this after the break. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the Terrorism Hotline. 
And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. I want to get back, and I'm sure you do too, to this cliffhanger where we left my guest, Candace Heather. She is the author of The Suicide Gene, One Slave, Two Masters, A Memoir of Survival and Hope. And we left her as a teenager, um, becoming more desperate to lose all of the weight that she put on, binging, um, binging and purging and so on. And what, and I know it's around then, you said your parents took you to the doctor and so you started reaching out for help. And what was that like? Yes, well, um, I, the first doctor I saw, um, and, then, uh, and also just to say that nobody knew I was purging either. They didn't know I was, I was binging, but they saw the weight loss. So it was the weight loss that my parents took me the doc- to the doctor mm. about. Um, I did speak to the doctor, to, uh, and I let her know that I was I was um, pin, um, you know vomiting and um, taking laxatives, and um, actually one of the one of the most dangerous things was having taken laxatives and passing out and hitting my head on a radiator and mm. um, and i um I ended up in hospital um with stitches in my head and concussion because I'd taken laxatives and um so it's obviously extremely dangerous um and that frightened me as well and every time I had gone through the the purging ritual, particularly with the laxatives, I very often would end up passed out on the floor and mm. again my my parents have absolutely no idea about this, and mm. so you know this is clearly a very serious illness, and i was you know I, I was worried about it as a, as well, but I suppose um, uh, yes. When I saw the, the the doctor, he said to my parents, "Oh well, she's not she's not too bad," and um, gave me a diet sheet, which is a mm. very strange re- <laughs> strange mm-hmm. thing to do with somebody. He give, gave me a calorie counting diet. But a little bit later on, I went along myself to see a different doctor, and she referred me to um, our national health service. Um, a psychologist, I guess, and um, when I spoke to her, she didn't see it as an issue with food, and um, she saw it all about self-esteem, but she had a very strange approach, and hers was, I would say it was a Freudian one, so she thought what I needed was a book on sex. And, with a word? Um, with a what? A book on, on, on sex for some reason. She yeah. thought it was all to do with that, uh, yeah. with her sort of Freudian approach. So I I just didn't go back. I thought to myself, <laughs> how can that have anything to do with the fact that I'm going driving around to these shops buying food? Um, so I, I just, just thought, well, no, that's ridiculous. So after that... Um, well, let me just uh, let me just warn you here. I am a Freudian. Oh, apologies. <laughs> and in fact, I studied at the Anna Freud Clinic in Hampstead. So just, 
just uh, to be transparent <laughs> as you go along. Go ahead. And I'll explain to you the connection with sex. Go, but go ahead. Oh, there we go. That was, that was, that was probably incorrect. That, that my very limited understanding at the time, well, I seem yeah. to remember having read something about the, 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 the various stages children go through, and I think yeah. I must have thought, ah, oh, Freud, sex. And that's it. So I apologize. That was, my, that was my ignorance at the time. But anyway, I, I didn't see that, that, by, that uh, getting a book on sex, which you recommended, <laughs> would have anything to do with, you know, with with my um, eating disorder problem. So the next therapist I, I um, wanted to see was uh, actually a friend of my sister's. She was um, she saw this lady and and I went to see her on one session and she said to me, "Oh my goodness, you know, I've, I haven't heard of anybody with so much self hatred. You're mm. going to need three sessions every week to get help." Mm-hmm. And then I found out how much it cost. And unfortunately, it was too much from, for our family to afford in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the next people I then turned to, they became rather bizarre and extreme. So I, I went to see um, a hypnotherapist, and um, and that was a, a, a very, very strange situation there. He, he must have rented a room out in, a, in an old people's home. And um, when I, I remember seeing him for the first time and him telling me, you know, you can only hypnotize somebody who's incredibly intelligent. Huh. And um, with with my ego at the time, I thought to myself, ooh, well, you know, you, you know what, whatever happens here, I'm going to have to make sure um, that I am hypnotized. So I remember him doing the sort of routine, I'm going to count back from 10 to 1 and you're, you're going to feel sleepy and all, on, on all the rest of it. And I remember thinking to myself, uh-oh, this isn't working, but I still played along and I closed my eyes and I let my head hang forward and um, ended up with a terrible neck ache, but um, mm-hmm. just kept going because I, I just didn't want him to think, oh dear, she's too too stupid to be hypnotized. Uh-huh. And so, <laughs> and I remember him saying, I uh, had a very bizarre approach again, saying that no, nobody else will have any influence on you in the, for the rest of your life. I have total power over you type of thing. Hmm. And, um, and I remember thinking, oh, oh yeah, you know, not, not really worrying too much about it. And when he eventually sort of like counted me back from... Um, one up to ten and told me to wake up and, and of course you know I wasn't hypnotized I was just thinking oh here we go open my eyes and, and pretend I'm, I'm all groggy um, and um, I said to him oh you know thanks very much I'll come back um, and um, I came back for one more session put up with, with a neck ache and pretending to be in a trance again and said to him oh thank you very much you've cured me and that, that <laughs> was the last time I saw him, so I didn't. I didn't bother going back again. Um, and then the next person I saw, even more bizarrely, I went to see a medium. I was, I was so desperate. Uh-huh. Um, I just thought I'd try anything. Um, and then, and then, of course, there was there was the usual medium routine where she sort of went through various letters of the alphabet and, um, and said, "I'm I'm hearing the I'm hearing the letter K." And I, you know, these days I think to myself, well, you know, if if we can communicate with the spirit world, why can't they say their name? Why is it the letter K? <laughs> 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 but um which is which was very strange. So um when um I think I just had one session with her and again she was obsessed with sex and um <laughs> said to me again that um, you know, recommended a book and, and, and recommended that I pass on another book to to um my fiance at the time. Um but again I thought, you know, 
this is absolutely ridiculous. Um, and, and so I, I didn't bother going back to her again. And then finally, I think by the time I was about 21, um, and again, um, I was working, but I, every job I had, I managed to last about two or three months um, b- before I, I think I was either asked to leave on one occasion because the binging and purging was so bad that I often couldn't turn up for work. Mm. Um, mm. I would be so ill, I'd have passed out and, and hit my head again, um, and I just couldn't hold down a job. Uh, so... Finally, in in London at the time, they handed out magazines. And remember, this is in the pre-internet days, so there was no website to look up. Um, this was 1987. Um, they used to hand out job magazines outside the station, and I picked one of them up. And in there, there was a page of personals and other things, and it had an advert from my therapist saying... Um, uh, I think it was a compulsive food ad- help for compulsive food addicts contact this number um, and that suddenly I saw the word food addict I'd never seen or heard of it mm. before mm. and it absolutely intrigued me and I thought to myself oh my goodness that's me that's my label uh-huh. and so I called I, I, I called up and I made an appointment and then I think that I um I sort of went into a bit of denial, had a had a massive binge, and I didn't I didn't go. But then he contacted me, or rather his secretary at the time, contacted me, and um, I um, made another appointment. And this time I did keep it. And um, and I remember um, sitting in front of him while he explained to me that I was an addict and that there was no way I would be be um, able to eat normally, and that I would need to go on a special um, food plan that avoided all the, all the types of foods that would, that would trigger binging and um, uh, overeating. And um, I tried, I started the food plan, and remember I'd been binging for uh, several times a day for the last last five years or so, and, um, and it had got worse and worse and escalated to the point where, you know, I, from, say, binging three times a week to binging several times a day. And I, you know, I I was absolutely at the end of my tether. Uh I was ready to do anything to get well. Or I was, I I had two options. One was to somehow find a nice way of ending it all or find a way to recover. And when he, uh, when I first went on this food plan, which was to avoid all the trigger foods, it was an absolute miracle. I, hmm. It was very healthy. It was um, weighed and measured portions. There was a, pro, there was a protein, a small amount of um, fish for each meal. There was a starch, but an, um, an uh, unrefined starch. So this would be um, something like soybeans. Um, hmm. And um, healthy, a healthy portion of vegetables, healthy portion of fruit. Three good meals a day and um, nothing in between, and, um, and I uh, kept to the exact um, weights, weighs, uh, weights and measurements that he, that he stipulated. I called in my food planner every day and spoke to him every day, but initially I had therapy for three days a week, um, and a, month, uh, a week went by, no binging, two weeks went by, no binging, a month, and then, you know, the time mounted up and mounted up. And I was absolutely, uh, this was a, a miracle to me. This was so amazing to have found um, 
a refuge to have found the answer to this binging. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, you know, to me, this was like, oh my goodness, it was so wonderful to have gone from the hell, and I can only describe it, and I know that if anybody's listening and they have uh, suffered bulimia and binge eating disorder, it, it, it really is like living hell to, to be absolutely controlled by food and to have no respite from it. And then to find, actually, there is a solution. And this solution, um, you know, this was just amazing for me. It was a revelation. Um, And so very quickly, you know, for somebody to give me that, the solution and the answer, that person very quickly became someone, oh, my goodness, you know, I've got to listen to this this man. Mm -hmm. And... And he said, you know, he he started by saying to me, um, essentially, he was very much um, believed that uh, people became addicts because they lacked unconditional love from their parents, and um, and that it was because they were um, neglected. I mean, he said to me that you know maybe it wasn't a physical abuse thing, but it was emotional neglect. Mm-hmm. And as a result of emotional neglect, um, I became a food addict. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I very soon, you know, and then he would start to say to me, okay, we need to, this is totally down to your parents, um, your mother in particular, the mother is the source of all all evil, if you like, was, was his philosophy. And um, it's necessary to, to start to withdraw from them. Um, I was married at the time, um, uh, at 21, and um, but um, my, my therapist was initially was sort of like said to me, "Okay, so get out of your parents' home and go and go and live with." Um, sorry, I wasn't. I was uh, sorry, my fiance. Um, so he was still my fiance at the time. So he said to me, "Get out of your parents' home, go and live with your fiance," and so I did. And and so I was with, with him. Then I got married. Um, so I was with my therapist for about a year and then he decided um, that actually uh, I was I wasn't towing the line if you like so I was I was late calling him when I was and I had my stipulated times I wasn't allowed to miss a meeting um, and he started to feel actually this is a danger and he would be able to say to me Candace you're you're risking your life here you know what it was like before if you don't do as you're told you are going to lose your abstinence and you're going to go right back to binging. And, and to, to me, that was absolutely out of the question. And so very slowly, he started to, you know, make me see that, no, everything he said from this point, I had to follow. And I was I was so desperate not to go back to that life that I um, pretty much agreed to everything. But also, I think I was... Um, my values, my allegiances were being transferred to him. And this is where the sort of the cult-like uh, idea comes in. And what makes, I think, cults so powerful is um, that they're underpinned by some truth. So clearly he had the food plan that had saved me. Um, and and also he, you know, it's actually very tempting to start feeling that you're a victim so um, by saying to me that it's all your family's fault or, or your, your mum and your dad because they didn't love you, um, you didn't get the unconditional love that you needed and the nurturing and you were neglected emotionally, as a result, um, you know, that, you know that, that's the cause. And it's actually tempting to, to, to get this sort of victim mentality and to feel that you were hard done by. 
Um, and so there was this kind of almost um, badge of honor to have to be this victim. And and therefore, I, I started more and more to see him because he had had this answer for me. To me, he, he, he was the one who was giving me this lifeline. And so what he, whatever he said was true in, in my mind at the time. And I didn't know, I had no idea that there was anybody else out there that was, you know, working an abstinence-based program for food addiction and, and bulimia, which is, is one, just one form of uh, food addiction along with um, binge eating disorder. Um, and, um, and there was nothing out there. There was no internet. Um, the, uh, there was absolutely nothing, particularly in the UK. But it so, uh, so happens that I realize now there were tr- um, budding treatments um, in the US at the time, um, but um, absolutely nothing in the UK. So the US is much more advanced in the understanding of, of food addiction. But um, back to the therapist. So he... Um, by this point, so I was living with my husband, and then he suddenly decided that actually, no, this was no good. I was still not knowing the line. He felt that um, I, he still, you know, my will was too strong, um, and that um, I needed to separate completely from my family and my husband. And so he said to me, right, um, we're going to have to arrange for you to... Um, come and, and, and move in he said to me he's got a flat in London I could move up I was, I was living in the country at the time and um, we arranged it all and I that you actually... would move into his that you would move into his flat hmm. or a separate it flat it, it was a flat that um, so he, he that he was in his name if you like even though he didn't live there uh-huh. So um, it was a flat. They they call them housing associations here, where I think um, it, it's a cheaper way of people renting and, and owning a home. So one of um, I, I believe one of his um, other clients had this um, in her name, and so um, it was made available for me, if you like. But in other words, it was it was a it was a flat in his name, mm-hmm. um, and so I I went up to London, and um, uh, I suppose. That, packed up my cats um, initially my husband came out and, and, and saw what I was doing and I said I said you know uh, actually we'd you know prior to that I had discussed that things weren't going well and he was angry he didn't like me being on the food plan this is my husband um, even though it had saved my life so for me it wasn't you know it wasn't just a case of off I go um, up to London with um, it, it, on the spur of the moment. It had been, you know, leading up to that. Mm. Had been, um, you know, problems with my husband because he didn't like me. He didn't like the fact that I was on the food plan because it interfered with social things. It was um, not easy for us to eat at the same uh-huh. time, if you like. Well, I'm hearing um, the. Um, I mean, I'm just heard the music for where we need to take a break. Uh, this mm. story is fascinating, so we'll take a break and then get back to it. <laughs> um, my guest is Candace Heather. Her book uh, is called The Suicide Gene, One Slave, Two Masters, A Memoir of Survival and Hope. And we're talking about uh, the second master now. The first master was food, and now we're talking about this cult-like therapist. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask 
the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking with my guest, Candace Heather, about breaking free from food addiction and a cult-like therapist. And right now we're up to the cult-like therapist who is a kind of Svengali guy. Of course, being the Freudian that I am, I asked Candace during the break whether there was any sex involved between uh, her and this therapist, which I thought, of course, there had to be, um, because that that's what he wanted to keep her as, as a sex slave. Um, but much to my chagrin, <laughs> apparently there wasn't anything physical. Um, he was, she was around 21, 22, 23, I guess, beginning in, in her early 20s at this point. And, um, he was about 48. He put her, got her into his flat in London. And, and then what? Yes, well, um, uh, what, you know, he, although he didn't do anything physically, it was all, you know, very much emotional. But he had probed, while I was with my hus- husband, he had probed into exactly uh, what we got up to. And um, he would, so, so there was something very weird um, because he wanted to find out what we did to each other in bed and, you know, various things. And he would say um, foreplay isn't allowed and, and mm. things like this. So um, he certainly had, there was something very strange um about it voyeuristic yes yes exactly so he would make me um tell him and i would be absolutely mortified (laughs) um but um i would still feel oh no well that you know i would convince myself if you like no no that must be okay and i would describe and tell him and then he you know he'd say no you mustn't do that and you you can't do this so that that was all all a bit weird um but um when i when i moved up there i think um initially it it felt you know it felt great because i was sort of like i i, I think i i felt really spiritual because it was, it was all based on a kind of his catholic background i think drove a lot of this um and so this was all based on a kind of a spirituality but re- the reality was it was it was kind of pseudo spirituality mm-hmm. um and 
he, I remember overhearing him once say to somebody that I was um, a really lovely person. Um, and I remember thinking, oh, that's really nice. But um, a little bit later, I did something that was to absolutely uh, turn him into, from somebody who was re- treating me reasonably okay to somebody who um, just absolutely, he, if you've heard the expression, he wiped the floor with me when he found out. I mm-hmm. had, um, uh, it, it was all, all, all through um, a cat that went missing. Uh, we, there was, a, there was a, uh, a spate of cat killings and I met up with a neighbour to try and sort it. And it, in, in the end, it turned out that I had a, a fling with this neighbour. Um, felt terribly guilty because um, obviously it was, out, it was out of the question. Uh, by this stage, I was, uh, you know, I was not... I didn't have any friends. I used to go to work, earn my money, give him. He insisted on a very high proportion of my salary, which went up and up um, to finally being three quarters. Um, but at the time, this this fling made me feel really, really guilty. And in the end, I confessed to him. I wrote a letter down and he used to come round to the flat for therapy sessions along with two other women. So um, it wasn't just me, but none of us were allowed to meet each other or talk to each other or make eye contact. Um, and so um, these and, and these other women, by the way, they, ha- they not only had to leave their husbands, they had to leave their children behind, um, which, um, you know, for me would, would absolutely finish me off and and I think that you know some of these women their wills were broken because of the because of having to leave their children um so so for me when, when he found out about um this fling that I had with a neighbor and I have to say I'm not proud of what I did um at all it it, it wasn't a nice one it was probably pretty sordid um and I would come home feeling awful and used um but I I, I stopped that affair um, but then I told, I confessed to my ther- therapist through a letter, um, and he absolutely, he raged and ranted and screamed at me, and um, and told me that. Uh, and, but I was so frightened um, that he would kick me out because I thought that I, I believed that he was keeping me alive. Mm-hmm. I believed the food plan and um, and him because he would he would instill that in me and say to me you know I'm the one who's keeping you alive you are so mentally ill you cannot function on your own if you leave me you'll be dead and um, you know but because it had taken he'd done this over a number of years like boiling a frog you start with cold water and um, by that stage I was absolutely dependent on him totally for everything Um, and so when he found out about the affair he was absolutely um, incensed and at that point that's when everything became so hard my sleep was rationed I was made to wear the ugliest clothes possible I was made to put on more weight Um, Mm. I wasn't allowed to deal with um, facial hair and he would control my weight by weighing me every week and then he increased my portion sizes so that my weight went up Um, Mm. all this was to put men off me so that they wouldn't... Um, yes, exactly, yes. Mm. I was forced to eat raw garlic and um, <laughs> yeah, a whole bulb, not just a clove, a whole bulb of it. Um, and then, by, you know, when that made me feel really, really ill and burned my stomach, I was allowed to cook it at that point. But, um, you know, I must have absolutely reeked. I had to walk around with a big headscarf on, um, kind of the, the clothes that uh, my grandmother would wear. And... Um, wheeling one of those shopping shopping trolleys along like like a bag lady if you like huh. and um and that was my kind of um 
that was how I was supposed now, to hide myself from not. Now, do you mm. think? Now, well, let me explain something. It's it's normal for mm. um, people in therapy to yes. um, develop a transference to their therapist. Um, mm. uh, typically, it's you know a woman um, thinking of the therapist as her father and having kind of an edible um, crush on him, and or same thing with men towards women, and so on. Um, so it's women therapists. And so did you feel, being honest, did, did, were you aware of feeling attracted to him? Actually, not remotely, but I did see him as a father figure. Very not, much so. Not remotely attracted, but you did see him as a father figure? Not sexually attracted, if you uh-huh, like. Uh-huh, uh-huh, okay. Um, but um, definitely see, see, saw him as a... Um, yeah, I mean, as a substitute father figure, I would say. Um, yeah, so... Um, I mean, because that's... And that's what he was playing on. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, this this man seems very, very sick. Was he a psych... Please don't tell me he was a psychiatrist. Was he a psychologist, or what kind of therapist was he? He was, he was called a psychotherapist. But do you know what degree he had? Oh, you know. well, that's the whole point. I don't think he was... Uh, traditionally qualified. Um, <laughs> he he called himself a psychotherapist, <laughs> but he didn't have like a, an MD or a PhD or anything like that. Um, no, as far as I was aware, he had a, um, a degree in education, and he might have taken a um, might have had a degree in psychology. Um, but certainly, mm-hmm. I, I would say he was not a qualified professional. Mm-hmm. Well, how um, how did you? Well, all right, let me just, I just want to, we're getting close to the end, and I just want to say a couple of things, um, and, well, just just tell us, like, in a couple of sentences, how did you get out of it? How did you finally get the strength to break free of this relationship? Yes, well, I think he pushed me too far, the sleep deprivation, uh-huh. taking three quarters of my money, and making me leave 2,000 voicemail messages on his phones every day, um, and that might sound ridiculous that it used to take me so long to do that that was that was the straw that broke the camel's back i had huh. to sort of read uh, i had to say things like i mustn't smile i mustn't make eye contact i mustn't wow. talk um, wow. and things like this over and over and over again dialing each time and that eventually it it really was that it was a um you know, combination of um, and that and shouting at me and screaming at me the whole time. He became an absolute rageaholic to me. Um, and I hope you reported up. him to the authorities. Pardon? I hope you reported yeah. him to the authorities once you left. Well, we haven't we haven't yet, but we have all the itemized phone bills. I have all my bank statements. Um, but I was um, I was and still am, if you. Uh, quite um, afraid. I remember sitting on the train uh, a few months ago and I, looking down and thinking I saw his shoes and wondering if he was sitting opposite me and I had mm. heart palpitations and I thought I was mm. going to pass out. Mm. So I'm actually still, I still feel that fear. I, I don't want to see him again. I don't yeah. want to ever hear his voice again. But I well, think that one day the time will be right to, um, you know, to get him well, struck off or, um, you know, to have a, law- a lawsuit against him. Well, yes, there has to be something to stop him from continuing to do this to other women. I mean, clearly yes. he was engaged in a sick, voyeuristic um, kind of game with mm-hmm. um, with you and with these other women where even though he was married and he didn't perhaps want to have 
uh, a real life affair for whatever reason, not just because he was married. That probably wasn't enough to stop him, but maybe he had mm-hmm. sexual problems. But um, but uh, he was enjoying having the control over you and these other women, yeah. and there was something sexual about that control and something mm-hmm. certainly that fed his ego in that. Yeah. Um, but mm-hmm. I just want to say a couple of things about uh, about you know, what you had said about your life, you know, you started out by saying that there were cuddles in your family, but your father was rather strict, which, of course, you know, then this guy, (laughs) this therapist, was incredibly Mm -hmm. strict, um, even though, on the one hand, he lured you in by saving your life and by giving you things, you know, by making you feel cared for and so on, and then in the end, uh, he he became your father on steroids, you know. Um, And and there was something in in this early life that had to have made, you said you were anxious and frightened and Um, Mm self-conscious. You know, there was something that went on in your early childhood uh, that made you feel that way, you know, before you got into the eating issues. And then you said you went to school and you were... You you felt like a victim, and you felt like um, the teachers didn't like you, and all that. And and then you mm-hmm. had this miserable face because you were expecting that they didn't like you, and that sort of became a vicious cycle. That you know, who likes someone with a miserable who looks unhappy mm-hmm. all the time? And then, of course, that craziness with the matron forcing you to. I mean, that's that's like textbook for how to cause somebody to have an eating disorder <laughs> to forcing forcing you to eat. Um, but you know, getting to the Freudian and the sex, I mean, there is something, there is something both, um, uh, maternal, you know, eating, being nurtured at the breast and so on. Food is related to the mother, but it's also sexual, um, because there's a kind of sensual pleasure that one gets from eating, especially the kinds of foods that you said, the trigger foods. Uh, and also the key was, one of the keys, <laughs> was that you said it was when you went to a wedding with your boyfriend at the time that you went mm-hmm. totally out of control. Do you remember mm. that? Yes. And so wedding, you know, that's related to love and sex and all of that. And there was something about that that was somewhat intimidating to you. And, and um, you know, I, I mean, perhaps if I'm... Uh, if you were in um, like long-term regular therapy, then these would be the kinds of things that one would get into and perhaps some buried memories, some unconscious kinds of things that you repressed that happened to you when you were a little girl that maybe did relate. Oh, man, there's the, the sound for the ending. Oh, well, I do want to say to everybody, obviously I can't do a whole psychoanalysis and you wouldn't want me to in, 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 less than a, you know, in the time we have left, but I do want to say that my guest managed to break free from her addiction, from this crazy therapist, and mm-hmm. um, she is happily married with two daughters and she is a very um, mm-hmm. successful um, uh, marketing professional in London, and well, actually, in, in yes, marketing head in London, and um, is trying now through her book, The Suicide Gene, One Slave, Two Masters, A Memoir of Survival and Hope, to help other people who, um, who have this eating food addiction and also who may have gotten into the hands of some wrong therapists, although fortunately not many are as crazy as the one you, you unfortunately got into the hands of. But I want to say I, I, you have my admiration for breaking through of all of this, and I'm so happy that you have a wonderful life right now, a home life and a work life, and this book will do wonders for people, and I do think you need to, hopefully maybe some of the other women will come forward 
And um, you can all have a lawsuit against this man or at least report him to the authorities to make sure that he doesn't keep doing this to other women. So thank you very much, um, Candace Heather, for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Thank you thank- very much. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.